0: So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, uh, I'm talking to Akugo Emijulu, who is Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick. Uh, Her new book, uh, which is co-authored with Leah Brassel, is called Minority Women and Austerity, Survival and Resistance in France and Britain. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dave.
0: No, and and thanks for taking the time to come on. Um, Almost the kind of the dream of an academic book is to be speaking directly and immediately to contemporary politics. And I think this couldn't be more relevant where we are now, both actually in the States uh, and in the UK, and as we'll talk about perhaps actually in France as well. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about uh, where the book came from and kind of like the intellectual genesis uh, of the book, um, particularly actually how we might connect up the long-term, and you know long empirical development of the book with this contemporary moment? Sure. So where the book came from
1: was, you know, it was really quite straightforward. Um, Leah and I, um, in different ways, were watching capitalism collapse uh, during 2008 and, and during the 2008 economic crisis. And we were also watching the ways in which different citizens started to kind of encamp in public squares, take to the streets to talk about, to dream about another world as possible. And so we were really taken with first this this crisis of capitalism um, post 2008, but then also this upsurge in, in radical activism in order to imagine a different kind of social and economic arrangement. Um, as we saw with Occupy Wall Street, Occupy London, and also los indignados in in spain and also in greece but of course we have a long-standing interest in exploring how women of color organize and mobilize and what we were really struck by we kept asking ourselves not just where the women were but like where are the women of color in this because because of the work we had previously done we knew and the empirical evidence is really clear that when we talk about who is disproportionately poor, who is on the who's at the sharp end of economic inequality, it's women of color. And so we were concerned about saying, Well, how are these populist movements on the left? Um, how are these anti-austerity movements representing race and gender simultaneously and alongside issues of class um, and economic inequality? And so we just wanted to ask the simple So The book comes from a very simple question of where are the women of color? Um, what happens to them in context of austerity and how are they organizing and mobilizing in this, um, in this fractious moment?
0: And one of the ways you, you kind of foreground that is through this idea of intersectionality, which is obviously crucial to the book. But also, I mean, it should be a kind of standard uh, idea in all contemporary social science by now, really, at least, you know, you'd hope. So it'd be great to hear uh, if you could sort of unpack that term a little and, and give the listeners a sense of, of what it means and, and why it's so important um, to the study of, of contemporary politics. Sure. So, uh for
1: listeners, just very the most basic way of understanding intersectionality is this: it's really about trying to understand how race, class, gender, legal status, disability, religion, sexuality, how these, um, how these interact, interact in ways that. That privilege some groups and disadvantage others. That's that's really it. Um, and what we were concerned about, and that is the theoretical framework for the book, is really trying to understand how do how does race, class, gender, and legal status in our case how do how do these um, axes of difference how do they interact in ways that 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 help us understand the the disproportionate impact of austerity on women of color, but then also how do they serve as resources? Because I think that's always what's so crucial when we're talking about women of color in public space, is that women of color are not just passive objects, victims, all the rest of it, but how do women of color use their race, their class, their gender, and legal status as resources for their mobilizations? So that's what we really wanted to do um, and understand for this project. And that's really the framework by which we understood this. And and that's, it, I, it's, I, I like that you said that, oh, this is something that should just be standard practice. But what we have found in our empirical project, um, called Minority Women's Activism in Tough Times, on which the book is based, we found when we kind of were writing articles and then also when we were presenting this work over, I think three years we presented this work in across Europe and in North America, what we found is people were really, um, many people and people I think who should know better, in particular feminist political scientists and feminist social scientists in general um, were struck our focus, our insistence on talking about race simultaneously with gender and class. Um, And so I think to put women of color at the center of one's analysis of inequality is still still radical and still subversive because I think regardless of what people say about how liberatory their their frameworks and work is, women of color are still either erased or are treated as inconsequential or irrelevant. And so, I don't know, I guess I kind of, I like the idea that you think that intersectionality is crucial, but I think that is absolutely an open question. And certainly in um, some recent work that I've done, I think that people who use intersectionality are wanting to use it in ways that disavow race and also decenter women of color, which I find deeply problematic.
0: Yeah, I see, I mean, we might, might jump ahead uh, to, to the conclusion, actually, of, of the book uh, or towards the end of the book, because that's one of the things that the book really offers as a challenge, actually, is not just to academic work, uses of the term intersectionality and, you know, analysis of particular forms of inequality, but also in terms of politics and political uh, kind of organizing, you know, the the, the way that what it means to be an activist, uh, you know, what it means to be involved in the kind of um, social policies of the state is really challenged by by an intersectional perspective. Yes. I mean, look, people have um,
1: an idea of what it means to be An activist or an actor in public space. They have this idea that this this person is a citizen first and foremost. This person most likely is white, is male, and they are audible and legible to both the state. And to other citizens, and what that means is these kind of incredibly narrow understandings of activism that are all, that are also motivated primarily by class and and, and and also gender. That those these narrow understandings seek to di- actually displace, erase, silence other ways of doing and being in public space, right? Um, and they and they also seek to um, subvert the ways, the particular ways in which women of color seek to make their claims. So. Yes, I mean to take intersectionality seriously means to take women of color seriously. And that is the challenge. We're talking now in the context of the Windrush generation being hounded by the Home Office. We're talking in the context of the BBC airing, um, for the first time, the full Enoch Powell rivers of blood speech. We're speaking in this moment where there's still a state of emergency in France and which a collective such as Moisi uh, uh, Collective, um, in Paris, are actually being investigated by the police for organizing um, a women of color only space, a black own a black women only space to view the Black Panther film, the Marvel Black Panther film. And so, I don't. We have to take seriously the ways in which those frameworks by which we we make le- legible certain activists, because there are very real and material and discursive consequences for that.
0: And actually that material uh, set of, of consequences is connected to a broader um, theoretical framework around politics. And, and, and one of the things that the second chapter does is, is introduce an idea of political racelessness and how it operates through essentially, as you've already described, actually, you know, kind of marginalize or, or erase uh, women of colour in um, political spaces, particularly in, in the context of a, of a view about what Europe is and, and, and again, as you've gestured towards actually who a who European citizen is. So I wonder if you could um, say a little bit about the idea of political racelessness. Oh, sure. So
1: this is a concept we take from David Theo Goldberg, and he defines it as as this. He says... He says, quote, race is to have no social place, no explicit markings. It is to be excised from any characterizing of human conditions, relations, or formations. And so for, uh, for Leah and me, this concept was incredibly helpful in trying to understand how the three very different contexts in which uh, the book is based, in which we explore with our participants, Scotland, England, and France. And hopefully later on we'll talk about the particular Case characteristics. So these contexts, with very different citizenship regimes and gender regimes, and different approaches to multiculturalism, despite these the, the divergences between them, there was a striking similarity of experience uh, of experiences between the different women of color activists. That we um, that we that we interviewed um, and that is down to what we argue that's down to the operation of political racelessness so this idea that race is to have no social space no, no, no social place I think is really crucial so for example in the French context this is the most um, the most obvious example. So in France, uh, France is governed by a particular Republican model of citizenship, where everyone is an abstract entity in public space, and you can make claims on the basis of class and gender, but you can't really make claims on the basis of race, although increasingly people are starting to do that. And that's really interesting and important because it's a way of silencing um, uh, women of color's political interests and it's a way of disavowing institutionalized racism and state racism um, and and that's really important and, and, and interesting as um, as an organizing context by which women uh, women of color seek to make claims and, and and in the the British context both in England and Scotland we don't see such um, such extreme um, such um, yes yeah, such, such an extreme disavowal of race but the women of colour activists that we spoke with still were in, the, in a very similar position as those in France. And I'll take Scotland as the example, not just because we were, we were once both at the University of Edinburgh, but because Scotland spends a lot of its time extolling the importance of multiculturalism and its liberal pluralism and how anyone can be a scot as long as you know they're for kind of scottish self-determination and the scottish national party um has been very clear about um about the construction of its nationalism not based on blood and birth but as but as support for scottish independence so one would think in contrast to what's happening in France um, and given this open um, and inclusive rhetoric that women of color in that space would in fact be able to operate in ways um, in which they were taken seriously and their interests um, were adopted. But in fact, we we see the opposite to be true because what we find is that in the French context, you can't talk about race because to talk about race is to is is a way of reminding France of its colonial history that it wishes to disavow, and it's a way of trying to atone for the Holocaust. In the Scottish context, to talk about race is is a divisive, pro, uh, is a divisive process. Um, it's a way of of. Um, of dividing the the, um, the citizenry as and not being able to talk effectively about class and not being able to talk effectively about gender and so even though women of color are in radically different contexts the results are still mostly the same that women of color are rendered invisible and inaudible in this context and the only way to try to understand how that can possibly be the case is that under European liberal pluralism or under French um, republicanism. Women of color can have no place, and we argue. In fact, it's mostly because they're not seen as truly human. That's really what it kind of comes down to: our long-standing colonial relations that cannot that cannot recognize women of color as human, because then that um, because then that that is the that is because that's what happens. Because that is the basis on which the entire idea of Europe is founded.
0: The third uh, case study, not not to leave them out, is England, and actually um, the English context might be usefully described uh, through the idea of austerity, which is obviously in, in the title of the book, and you know is, is crucial actually for amplifying uh, that set of uh, dehumanizing ideas you've, you've just outlined. So I wonder if you could introduce the English context through uh, the concept of austerity
1: interesting that the issue here is not just about austerity. Um, Just to take a step back in terms of how, so how does political racelessness operate in the English context? Well, one would think in England where you have a, a large minority ethnic population that is nevertheless Concentrated in London, um, that one would think that there is an ability to kind of for women of color to operate without too many problems in public space, um, and that isn't that isn't, unsurprisingly that isn't the case. Because that's because that's where we have to look at the broader context of the retreat the retreat from multiculturalism that has been taking that's been taking place since the early 2000s. And again, this is what we mean about how. In the book, we talk about how political raceless racelessness is a project that's engaged that both the political left and right engage in. So one might think, oh well, you know, the reactionary right, we're in this moment of right-wing populism, of course these folks don't want to talk about race. But in fact, what we see is that actually it's 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 actors on the left, it's governments on the left that actively participate in this process of disavowing race. And so we talk about in the book how many, um, you know, the, um, how, you know, the last three Homes labor home secretaries who recanted their previous positions on multiculturalism and you know and adopted more of a Trevor Phillips line of we're sleepwalking desegregation to because too because there's too much of a focus on difference and not enough of a focus on what you know supposedly unites us um, in some sort of universal human project. And so that's what's really interesting in the context of, of England. And then all of that is amplified and is brought into sharp relief through the asymmetrical um, um, processes of austerity measures. So across all three cases, we see that women of color were already living in precarious circumstances, and austerity measures only further immiserate women of color is already, as I was saying, over concentrated in low skilled, low paid work, already more likely to be living in poverty, and less likely to move out of poverty. What we see is when you cut away the social welfare state, you cut away the social safety net and you cut away women of color's um, household incomes.
0: Could you sort of um, drill down into that a, a bit more? Because one of the things that the, the book does is, is to give quite a lot of um, empirical, I guess, kind of like social policy detail about what we're talking about here. So, you know, you talk about um, the restrictions of access to public services, the restrictions to uh, support from the state through um, both, uh, you know, kind of financial support, but also in terms of access to the kinds of, of jobs um and, you know, access to the, in France, the the public sector. Um, And and you you use the language of kind of like routinized crisis as a result of these social policy decisions. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about what exactly those social policy decisions have been. Sure.
1: So in that conversation of routinized crises, um, we wanted to uh, foreground the, how the discursive construction of, The 2008 economic crisis and subsequent austerity measures actually seek to undermine women of color's claims. And what we argue is this what Leah and I argue is this that before, as I was saying, before 2008. Women of color were more likely to be in precarious work. They were more likely to be living in poverty. They were less likely to be able to own their own home, get a mortgage. Um, all, you know, more likely to be in debt. So all of the things that we talk about now as a symptom of the ongoing slow-moving economic crisis were, were already a crisis for women of color pre-2008. But. The issue in terms of how we think about social policy is about how we construct um, policy problems and and who and whose crises or get you know, whose um, yes whose struggles get the are privileged enough to be called a crisis. That's the issue. So when we talk about this idea of routinized crises, we have to understand that all the things that we're talking about now about. Um, About uh, kind of low pay or stagnant wages or the introduction of zero hour contracts. All of these things women of color have long dealt with higher rates of unemployment, all the rest of it. But none of that equaled a crisis until. These precarious working conditions spread to the to once to groups with, who were once protected from these processes. And so for me, that's the issue that now we care about crisis is because university graduates, white university graduates, now are not guaranteed a job and are having a problem, you know, getting a mortgage and buying a house. That now is a crisis. But women of color have been dealing with that since I. In one of the in some of the figures we, uh, we quoted, they've been dealing with this since rec- begin, but that doesn't count as a crisis and so our book is really trying to challenge many of the kind of social policy conventions about how we construct policy problems and who who gets the privilege of having the state or various political actors act on these crises and that's really the issue that, um, that we're particularly interested in.
0: Yeah and, and it also represents a challenge I think and particularly you know you mentioned the kind of who gets to act and who the political actors are in a context where um, social policy is um, being, I was going to say devolved to, but but perhaps kind of like offered as an opportunity for enterprising third sector organisations um, and the same sorts of themes, you know, that question uh, about, but why is this a crisis now when it's always been a crisis, a present in your analysis of, Third sector uh, service delivery. And again, it'd be great to hear sort of how um, that routinized crisis intersects and interacts with third sector organizations that are both being kind of like challenged to do social policy, but also perhaps, you know, kind of offered the chance to do social policy as well. So it is so interesting to
1: map how the third sector has is being restructured, um, not just under austerity, but really the longer process of um, the neoliberal, uh, um, I don't know, what, what do you call it? colonization of the state. Um, and I suppose that's the thing that's, I, I guess that's maybe one of the themes of the book that I'm only kind of now pro- properly realizing is that these are such, these are much longer processes, right, that the, that, that the 2008 crisis only brings only makes clear if that makes sense. So we get a sense of clarity of long-standing processes as a result of the crisis. And so, for example, so the ways in which the third sector has transformed because um, because of the crisis but even really before the crisis to be honest, uh, there's a concept of permanent austerity that, uh, that our social policy uh, listeners will know quite a lot about. Um, that since the mid to late 90s, we've starved the social welfare state of, 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 of funding to effectively pay for public services. And that's had a knock-on effect of mobilizing the third sector across Europe to do more, to, to do more, but also to do more with less. And so what that means is that we've seen um, service provision fracture as a fragile third sector seeks to kind of seek to win contracts and all the rest of it. And so, there's a much longer process of the third sector being drawn in to doing state work. And what that means, that has then had a knock-on effect to solidarity and coalition and collaboration within the third sector, where once, and we shouldn't kind of overstate that there was all this un- unproblematic partnership working and all the rest of it, but I think people, you know, it seems to be very clear that this was once a thing that existed, that where once there was, Um, ways of working, some sort of cooperation between third sector entities, what we see is in this jockeying for state contracts, this jockeying for position, particularly in a context where we see this massive withdrawal of funding from the state, what we see is this. I would, you know, I don't think there's any other way of describing this as just this incredibly gross process where you see third sector organizations kind of competing for market share for various social problems, and nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the anti-violence against women sector. And many of our um, our participants, particularly in the Scottish and English context, talked about this, about how the Shrinking state funding and the and the movement of block grants from you know from the the transformation of block grants into kind of state contracts to deliver services has really um, destabilized women of color led organizations, particularly in the area of um, anti-violence against women's services and refuges and all the rest of it. And this is part of the reason why, um, say, the activist group Sisters Uncut exists, right? They were mobilized to action because of this crisis, and women of color led anti-violence against women's services. But kind of the part of the story that isn't told is the ways in which larger uh, larger white-led anti-violence against women's organizations were bidding for contracts and outbidding, out undercutting women of color-led organizations, which led to uh, a, a crisis in their financing and their closure. And that's kind of, I think, an important and uncomfortable story that we need to tell about the, the collapse of solidarity in different parts of the third sector, the ways in which the third sector has been reshaped that in, that people would think that it's at all appropriate to outbid your colleagues who have specialist expert, um, knowledge and, and, and experience of working with women of color in order to secure your organization that has no track record in this area. For me, that is emblematic of the so-called enterprising third sector, right? That you, that they you yeah. know, that they are, um, tasked with with income generation and in, in ways that they've never had to do before and that comes more often than, than not at the expense of, of an already precarious women of color led third sector
0: and in the french context you know you describe in um one of the later parts of the book how this has led to essentially a kind of like instrumentalization um of minority women uh not just in terms of kind of you know, bidding for contracts or the um, continuation of the third sector organisation, um, but, but actually around how the French state frames almost its own view of itself um, vis-à-vis this community um, and co- co-optation and, and instrumentalization in France, I, th- I think is a is a fascinating uh, case study to extend that analysis of um, the enterprising third sector. For
1: sure. This is what's interesting about this is this is long standing, and and it's and it's really the crisis that has brought this into sharp relief. And this goes back to our conversation about the Republican model of citizenship, and also about how political racelessness operates in the French context. And so we were talking before about how difficult it is for women of color to, um, to exist in public space and to make claims um, and to make uh, political claims based on say their race or their religion or their ethnicity. Well, what because there are so few options to do this, what we have found, but this is a long standing kind of issue and other scholars have found this as well in the French context, is that many women of color and particularly working with uh white white feminists have to reshape themselves into um into victims um they are victims um of their kind of barbaric religion i.e islam they are victims of their barbaric practices such as female genital genital mutilation and cutting you know they're you know they are um, victims of barbar, other barbaric practices such as uh, wearing the hijab or or the burkini. We were actually writing this book in the middle of the controversy about the burkini ban in the south of France, actually, um, and. Oftentimes, this way of Leah has um um, has a uh, in one of the chapters of um, one of her solo authored books, she talks about this idea of the only way we can be heard is if we bash our culture, and in the French context, that oftentimes is the case. That so women of some women of color are co opted and instrumentalized. They can talk about particular kinds of inequalities, but that inequality is always located in some sort of so-called failure of their culture, um, and certainly never located in the systemic uh, racial inequalities perpetuated by the state. You know, we should pause at this point and talk about how, in our in the book, we talk about how the difficulty of even trying to measure um, poverty rates or inequality rates um, and um, by race and gender because so much of this data is not disaggregated in the French context. In fact, it's illegal to um, collect data on the basis of race in the French context. And so people have to use proxies like location and, and, and migration history and all the rest of it. So we're in this weird context where not only can you not properly measure it, but when folks do want to... Um, want to speak and operate in public space on the basis of race and ethnicity. They're, they're co-opted and instrumentalized as a way to further denigrate and to other, um, and, and to be constructed as, 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 as hostile foreign agents. And I just want to say one quick thing is that what's, so interesting about kind of the new wave of Afro-feminist activism. So folks like the Mwasi Collective, there's a new collective called the Swatchi Collective, and there are and a number of um, folks organizing. The reason why they are so interesting is because they they break from this script of victimhood. They break from this script of kind of quote unquote bashing our culture and seek to and seek to name directly issues of state racism. And unfortunately, what we see is they are targeted not just by the right but importantly crucially they are targeted by the left and by white French feminists for being racist and for being divisive
0: I mean it, it, it's fascinating this because uh, not to sort of you know reveal the magic of how the podcast works but you know I send you a bunch of questions you know that might frame the discussion and one of them was you know a kind of a sense of like maybe have things changed since um, you know the uh, the time when when the book was was in production, which is now sort of uh, twelve, maybe maybe eighteen months ago. And on the one hand, there is this, as as the you know the, the back end of the book identifies, this moment of you know a challenge both to social policy models uh, and also to models of, of activism. You know, and indeed, actually, the book challenges the idea of models in themselves. But also, there is. A, I suppose a more explicitly and aggressively racist uh state context in, in, in Britain, um, certainly in, you know, in, in the States, although, you know, you can argue that's sort of always been been there. Uh, um and, you know, I sort of know less about contemporary France. And I, I sort of I wonder if you could reflect a bit on on how things have changed and, you know, not to give a false hollywood ending of like oh there are these you know new approaches and things are, are getting better but but actually to to kind of contextualize the lessons of the book in the in the political moment that we we find ourselves in now
1: yeah so what's so interesting and it was actually kind of a, a, a frustration of our uh, of our, of mind leah's um in writing the book that i think it was something like as soon as leah finished the, her last interview in London, and she's like, We're done with our field work. Woo! <laughs> Sisters Uncut did their first action, like when they kind of invaded the red carpet of the suffragette yeah. Movie. yeah. And we were like, Damn it. <laughs> we were like, oh! Because we have been writing this book right at the start of austerity measures in the UK. And um, and in France, there's still, to this day, this kind of confused approach to austerity. And because we had started this in the early days, there was actually, you know, folks have been and are still doing lots of very interesting organizing, but explicitly, um, anti-austerity activism and it's and in the French context explicitly Afro-feminist activism had not yet emerged. And so we were kind of in this context where there was like a lot of old line um, formalized um, black and minority ethnic organizations or um, and all the rest of it who weren't really doing the austerity thing, if that makes sense. Although there were folks around and I don't want to kind of discount that at all. But for us What is so interesting about this moment is that the context has gotten so much worse than I think we... We anticipated we knew when things were gonna be bad we wrote we finished writing the book in um, in the aftermath of the brexit vote but this is before Trump was elected um, and it was also in the aftermath of the, the horrifying debates about the burkini ban and all the rest of it in the French context um, I don't know if we anticipated that um, to, to see the spike in hate crimes to see the, um, the backlash against women of color organizing as women of color, and to see the systemic backlash against say Moissy Collective in the French context is, is truly appalling, but also not surprising. Like we shouldn't be, like, and I suppose I'm not surprised, but it's still horrific to witness this, right? Um, but I suppose what's so interesting is that in Well, no. I mean, this is kind of classic social movement theory that when you see something like this, you know, so you see a an an uptick, uh, so you have a crisis, and so you have kind of a left wing response, but also a right wing response. As a right wing. Consolidates power that that produces its produces its own response, and so in some ways we shouldn't be surprised that we see this new flourishing of Black feminist activism and Black feminist consciousness in the context of Trump and Brexit, because this is you know the conditions of what made that possible also produce um, really interesting resistances. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. But for me, what's interesting is this this different kind of consciousness, um, and that's also particularly being led by younger women, and so. I I organized this kind of event called Black Feminism, Womanism, and the Politics of Women of Color in Europe precisely to kind of capture this new kind of wave of activism that's taking place, particularly in the European context. And again, not saying that stuff wasn't happening that's very, very interesting, but I think we're seeing this uptick in in creative resistances that I think need to be... Uh, that need to be taken seriously and certainly were not apparent to us when we were in the middle of our field work. And so not a Hollywood ending. Like Things are as terrible as anyone could have ever expected in terms of we stopped talking about austerity, but the worst of the cuts are still yet to come. Yeah. In the French context, we're seeing protests because Macron looks like he's finally going to, going to be able to make good on the promises of previous um, of previous presidents to kind of uh, to um, to impose a level of precarity on the French labor market and so things are terrible, but there are resistances and I think we need to we take solace in that and we should seek to support and take seriously what's um, what uh,
0: women of color are doing at great personal cost I should add I mean we've only released really sort of scratch the surface of, of, of what's in the book it's you know that there's an incredible amount of both um detail i mean you know we barely even talked about the kind of like field work you you were doing and, and the interview data as well as the you know the kind of theory and social policy analysis so you know i sort of recommend everybody um gets into it and everybody reads it but this is the moment where you know kind of in the classically bit of mean academia i, I kind of ask so what are you working on now? <laughs> you know, because, oh. you know, the, the sort of the process of, of academic book writing does take a long time and it is, you know, it's, it is it is kind of a bit mean to kind of say, oh, well done and now your next project is, but, and your next project is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well,
1: two things. Well, for Leah, uh, she just finished a large, like, honestly, I don't know how she even paid attention to like our project because she, in the middle of doing this project, she um, had a, a, a massive um, ESRC grant, Economic and Social Research Council grant, which looked at. She was the um, principal investigator for a project on uh, the UK citizenship test, and so she's in the middle of um, writing. Um, she's writing a, a book on um, on citizenship processes, and she's in the middle of writing a, a, a lot of articles um, in relation to that big project on um, on citizenship and and um, and and people of color in the in the UK. So that's so that's what she's working on. Um, I'm in the middle of a project called the Politics of Catastrophe, which which literally is a follow up. From um, this current, from from the book, which looks at how women of color are organizing against austerity, for migrants' rights, and against the far right, and that's based in um, in London, Amsterdam, and then Austin, Texas. So, kind of where where I'm now from. So, uh, which is interesting. In order to kind of dig deeper, to kind of capture um, the the new kinds of activism that I was talking about, so with folks like, um, with kind of the new actors on the scene in the UK. As I say, there's been this revival of Afro-feminist activism across the continent. And off the port, the the Netherlands leads in all of our conversations about right-wing populism, but no one really talks about the really interesting Afro-feminist activism that's taking place um, as a result of that uptick in right-wing populism. And so it was really important for me to kind of Get in amongst uh, what folks are doing there, and then in the in, and in the U.S. context, I was really interested in understanding how cities that are designated as sanctuary cities, of which Austin, Texas, is about how does that frame the ways in which women of color um, organize for migrants' rights? And so, of course, you know, Texas um, has uh, shares a border with Mexico, and so that's something that's really at the forefront of a lot of people's minds um, um, in um, in the state capital
0: thanks for listening to new books in critical theory i've been your host dr david o'brien on this episode i was talking to dr arnold Sahar about his new book race and the cultural industries